It is a collector show for another week. I'm Harold Nickel. Thanks for tuning in to us either on iTunes or on Web Talk Radio. We're available in either spot. And as I've said before, if you have missed an edition of the collector show, you can go subscribe and get all of them if you just go to iTunes and just type in the collector's show. Or easier still, just type in my name, Harold Nickel, and it's N I C O L L. And you'll be taken to all of the collector's show. You can subscribe. Get all of them and never have to worry about going to the website if you don't want to. And, of course, there are tons of other great shows on Web Talk Radio. A collection of Texas history items at the San Jacinto Museum, which also has a huge monument styled after the Washington Monument coming up in the first interview segment. And then an interview I've really been looking forward to. You remember a couple of weeks ago in the news segment, I talked about a man who had sold a single salmon can label for $600. He's in the interview segment. We're going to be talking with about collecting salmon can la labels and all other different kinds of labels. A nice follow-on from the fruit crate label collection last week, but this man actually sold a single salmon can label for $600. bucks. you are going to want to stay tuned for that. Shocking news from the world of collecting at NASA. And those of you who have been listening to the program for some time know that um, we talked with a man who collects things that have been in space. Well, NASA has finally admitted something I think that we all knew. When they originally reported that they had lost the original tapes of the Apollo 11 moon landing, well, turns out not only did they lose them, but they recorded over them. 200,000 video cassettes at NASA were repurposed to save money. They were re-recorded over. Now, thankfully, there were enough other recordings of the original Apollo 11 moon landings that they've been able to reconstruct and really improve the video quality of those original tapes, but they to save money, somebody thought it would be a good idea to tape over those original tapes of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And it turns out that um, what they recorded, Judge Judy, huge Judge Judy fans at NASA on 200,000 cassettes, found a new collectible. You like to collect shoes? Some people do, and most of them are guys. It's the Air Jordan generation that has started to collect shoes. Sneakers, it turns out, are produced in limited runs, and the people who collect these different kinds of sneakers are called sneakerheads. Sometimes the company will make as few as 50 or 100 pairs of certain styles of shoes, and they do this, of course, as a promotional gimmick to increase the hype. The shoes are often resold by collectors on eBay, and sometimes unscrupulous folk will counterfeit those rare shoes. They're like cars. They get released in different models. And each shoe has an array of different colors and patterns. There's one fella who, who uh, collects all the different kinds of shoes, and he has 250 different pairs. And it seems like a number of months ago we did a news item about 
guys who were selling all these different shoes out of their dorm room and making a lot of money doing it. So if you can figure out what the new kinds of shoes are that are being released by Nike and lay your hands on them, you could have some rare shoes. You can add them to your collection. As always on The Collector Show, we do not recommend doing things just for money. And if you're really into different kinds of shoes, you could collect the shoes that were worn by different athletes, different celebrities, in addition to these kind of limited run deals. So that's the news from the world of collecting this week. If you are working at NASA and listening to this, please hire a historian or an archivist to help you out with your other <laughs> important videotapes. And let's just make sure that the rest of them don't get recorded over. Coming up in a moment, it's Texas History, all here on The Collector Show. It's Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nichol. For our first segment on The Collector's Show this week, we're going to be talking with Larry Spasik. Larry is with the San Jacinto Museum of History in Houston, Texas. And if you didn't grow up in the state of Texas, you may not be aware of all of the history that occurred at a place called San Jacinto and how significant it was not just in Texas history, but for U.S. history. And Larry, welcome to The Collector's Show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we appreciate it, too. Now, um, let's start out with a little basic Texas history for uh, people who may not be aware of what occurred at, Gen at San Jacinto and the significance of that event. Well, the Battle of San Jacinto was a, uh, a battle that was led by uh, Texians fighting for their independence from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And a part of the Mexican army under the command of General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana was defeated uh, here on the plains of San Jacinto on April 21st, 1836. This led to a, a series of historical events resulting in uh, Texas joining the United States of America as a 28th state, and then a boundary dispute with Mexico uh, resulting in the U.S.-Mexican War, which really changed the face of geography of the United States of America, adding almost a million square miles of territory, making us a bi-coastal nation. So even though this battle only lasted 18 minutes, <laughs> uh, it did change the history of the United States and even world history because as our young country uh, developed with all the natural resources gained with this territory, uh, the power did shift from Western Europe to the United States, allowing us eventually to defend the world against fascism in two world wars. So this 18-minute battle significantly played a role in, uh, in world history. And we're going to talk about some of the artifacts that are located at the museum. But the first thing I want to ask you about is the, the length of this battle was very short. How do you, or how do historians account for how brief that encounter was? I think there were several factors involved. First of all, uh, those Texian immigrants that were fighting in this battle were fighting for their homes, their cities, their farms, their families, their friends. Mm -hmm. And those in the uh, Mexican army were far from uh, 
Mexico City and some of the provinces where they lived. Uh, they were unfamiliar with the terrain, and this battle was not fought in an unorganized, it, it wasn't fought in an organized way, it was fought in an unorganized way. Right. And uh, the Mexican army and San General Santa Ana held the Texians in low esteem, and he was very overconfident because of their results up until the time of this battle. Topography played uh, an issue. There was a rise that separated the two armies, and Santa Ana elected to uh, leave the high ground so that his horses and men could be uh, uh, closer to water and in in the shade trees. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... When that happened, I think it allowed the Texian army to uh, advance across an open plain. Mm -hmm. uh, guards were not posted, and uh, the result uh, was because the Mexican army was not allowed to uh, form up mm -hmm. in the method in which they were used to fighting. Uh, the Texians were excellent shots. They depended on uh, their defense and food from hunting, mm -hmm. and all of these factors combined with, uh, with a surprise attack at a time of day that Santa Ana wasn't expecting mm -hmm. uh, led to the Texans' victory. Now, was it during siesta time, what we've always heard? Well, uh, General Santa Ana was, was a student of European history, and uh, uh, thought that the battle would take place in the early morning hours. Mm -hmm. uh, when the Texians did not attack at that time, uh, they uh, did rest because they had spent the entire night building a small barricade, and then when reinforcements, 500 men, arrived in the morning uh, who had been marching all night long, uh, they felt very secure in their in their position. Uh, Sam Houston decided to attack uh, over the open plains at about 4.30 in the afternoon, mm -hmm. and uh, it did catch the uh, Mexican officers and, and troops by surprise. Well, and what you say about overconfidence, I think, um, and it's been a long time since 7th grade Texas history, but... The Texans had lost most of the major battles of the war. They had lost at Goliad, and they had lost at the Alamo. Um, but they guess they won the most important battle of the war, the last one. I, it's complex. Well, and it, you know, it, it was fortuitous indeed, because as you say, it's had so many ramifications, not just for the state of Texas, but for the entire world. And the Yellow Rose of Texas, is there any light you can shed on that legend for us? Well, we have actually found some recent documentation that sheds a little bit more light okay. uh, on uh, Emily Morgan uh, West. Uh, I never, I never knew her name. Yes. Oh, that's uh, cool. Uh, she, we know that she did uh, sign a contract uh, at Morgan's plantation to work, and uh, that she could read and write. Mm -hmm. uh, she was uh, at uh, New Washington uh, when uh, it was uh, burnt to the ground, mm -hmm. and uh, we believe
believe she was here at the battle. Okay. Uh, I don't think she came to uh, San Jacinto of her own accord. Right. Uh, that would be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, after everything she had worked for and her employment was dashed with the burning yeah. to the ground of, of that estate. Uh, but we don't have any known evidence that any secret messages were passed mm-hmm. by Ms. West. Uh, I think that even though uh, Santa Ana, uh, who may have entertained Ms. West, uh, was not in his tent at the time of the attack, as as uh, ribald writers have suggested, uh, his uh, uh, secretary, uh, uh, Senor Caro, mm-hmm. uh, was not uh, enthralled with Santa Ana's conduct at the battle. He letter, later read, uh, wrote a critical account of Santa Ana being asleep under an oak tree yeah. at the, the time of the initial attack. And had he been entertaining someone in his tent at the time of the attack, I feel sure he would have uh, enjoyed mentioning that uh-huh. in his uh, memoirs, had it been the case. No one knows for sure, right. uh, but we do know that this lady did exist. She was at the battlefield, and uh, we kind of lose track of her as she headed back to the East Coast. Okay. It's a very intriguing story, and maybe... Uh, sometime in the future we'll find out more about her. This information we found out was was uh, locked in a safe box at a bank and through an estate mm-hmm. uh, uh, being uh, settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of this historical information was found out and written about, and, and that oftentimes happens in history. You find out a little bit more. You find out something different. Mm-hmm. The more pieces of the puzzle you put together, uh, the clearer the picture becomes. And uh, indeed, that's one of the values of history, is that it gives you a broader perspective than what you might have. And so your decisions and reactions have a more adequate uh, response than if you did not have that information. Right. That's our mission, and that's why we teach the value of history, critical thinking, and judgment skills, uh, perspective. Uh, that's what we try to pass on to young people everywhere because it helps them in their daily lives. Sure. Now, you were you mentioned the, the collecting or uh, finding the pieces of the puzzle, and there are a lot of those pieces that are collected at the San Jacinto Museum. Give our listeners a, a quick description of the kinds of things that they would see when they visit the museum? Well, our permanent gallery uh, interprets 400 years of history. Mm-hmm. And so uh, our collection, though, is much broader, and its depth is more than what most people would understand and think of before they come out here. Mm-hmm. We have some artifacts uh, that date back 1,100 years to the Toltec Empire, wow. uh, which preceded the Mayan and the Aztec empires. So the history of the New World, uh, the history of New Spain, the history of Mexico is the history of Texas, as well as uh, the history of uh, the United States. Uh, We have uh, Aztec and 
Mayan artifacts in our collection. Mm -hmm. uh, we have many unique, one-of-a-kind uh, pieces in our collection. We have a sword from the Coronado Expedition. Oh, wow. Where, uh, they were looking for the seven cities of gold and silver. They had found such a, a wealth of materials at Tenochtitlan, the capital city of the Aztec Empire, uh, located on an island uh, which is now underneath where Mexico City sits. Uh -huh. But they did believe some of these stories about uh, seven Indian villages that were so wealthy that jewels adorned some of the living headquarters. They ate out of uh, uh, gold and silver bowls, and uh, they traveled all the way through Mexico City, through uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, all the way up into Kansas, looking for the seven cities of gold and silver. Clothing, Anna. For the, sorry, for the uh, collectors and the people in, um, who are interested in starting collecting different kinds of artifacts about Texas history, what kind of advice would you have for those folks? Well, I would, I would say this. It, it is an interesting journey to try to find uh, uh, Texas heritage in your family or uh, from those who uh, have these items that might be interested in, in, in selling them. I would say check your own attic first. Okay. We like to think of ourselves as being the, the attic of Texas history because uh, when other museums illustrate Texas history in a survey way uh, that's extensive. They have to come to our collection to fill in all the holes to, to mm -hmm. do that. I, I would say it is much more important uh, to collect and then offer to museums the wealth of what you find because it ensures uh, that it will forever uh, be taken care of uh, conserved, interpreted, and 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 shared with Texans, their guests. You know, we have people that visit our museum from all 50 states, mm -hmm. from 60 foreign nations, and the 14 territories of the United States yearly. And so, uh, there are millions of people that uh, they get to share in this experience if these items are collected and then given uh, to a responsible nonprofit uh, educational association. We do. And it sounds like very much a calling. And uh, for people who are interested in visiting the museum, how can they find you? Well, they can find us on the Internet at www.sanchezena.com or uh, you can uh, call us. Mm -hmm. Our phone number is 281 uh, 479-2421. Right. It, it's, it, we're, we're easy to find. Mm -hmm. We have membership and newsletters that go out that let everyone know uh, uh, how to support our organization. But uh, I, I would caution people that when they try to find and collect pieces of history, I, w I would say go to a professional appraisal association uh, there are two here in the United States, and, and I would say approach a museum. Um, there is a, a uh, market that is uh, not a legitimate market that people would want to stay away from right. for their own uh, security, and for that 
the, for the security of that history. And so uh, we, I would say 99.9% .9 of the items we have here at our museum are items that have been donated to the museum to be shared. And so we would love for people to call us or get on the Internet and contact us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are able to share a lot of our collection. We have about 18,000 artifacts, about 22,000 volumes, almost 300 linear feet of manuscripts and documents, and we're trying to get as much of that as possible on the Internet so that we can share it with people wherever they're at. So for people who are interested in learning more about Texas history, contributing things that they've collected about the history of the state of Texas, check out the San Jacinto Museum website. And Larry Spasek from the San Jacinto Museum of History, thank you so much for uh, talking with us this week on The Collector Show. Bulls on The Collector Show, I'm Harold Nickel. Well, I think one of the most anticipated interviews ever on The Collector's Show is now. You'll recall a couple of weeks ago that I read a news item about a man in California who collected salmon labels. Well, it turns out that Dwayne Rogers collects a lot more different types of labels and labeling than just salmon, and he's here with us. Dwayne, welcome to The Collector's Show. Thank you, Harold. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, and thanks for making time for us. Now, it sounds like there's a lot to this hobby. So there is a, yeah, there is a lot to it. I'm kind of hoping we can hit the different spots, but it's a pretty big hobby. Yeah, I, and um, you know, I fancy myself knowing quite a bit about different kinds of collectibles. But I got to tell you, when I read that news item, it was the first I'd ever heard of it. So, so walk us through some of the fundamentals of of label collecting, if you don't mind. Okay. You know, along that line, it's it's funny because um, one of the Actually, there's, there's certain pioneers in the hobby, and the hobby probably started back in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm more familiar with the fruit crate, fruit crate part of it, so I'll probably venture along the fruit crates. And the can labels and salmon labels are kind of like a, like a stepsister to the fruit crate labels. They're the primary ones. And it all started in Southern California, really, um, and it's the orange labels okay. in Florida. And so you have, like, um, I mean, everybody that lives in Southern California is familiar with the orange crops and the orange blossoms and, the, you know, the smell of the oranges. Mm -hmm. And um, they started shipping labels, they're shipping oranges out of Southern California back in the 1890s. Right. And like, like everything, can labels and everything, whenever you ship a product, you have to have uh, identification on it. Yes. And so what you have is you have uh, every box that went out of the area had a label on it. And there was almost like a competition going on at the time. And really, as far as printed matter... Um, if you look at, you know, look at trade cards, I'm sorry. That's okay. If you look at trade cards and, um, you know, different Victorian print and stuff like that, labels are probably one of the most printed items in color from that time period. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at, like, jumping to the can labels, like Del Monte used to put in orders for millions of can, can labels printed, like, in 1905, 1910. Mm -hmm. And so it was a vast amount of the stuff that was printed up in, Virtually a very small amount survived. Um, well, cards, people, you know, no, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, printing in those days was a lot more involved, if not just downright dangerous, than uh, the kinds of digital things we have today. So mm -hmm. I would think that um, finding a label that survived for over 100 years would be 
quite something. Do you ever find any of the uh, apparatus that printed those labels? You know, on occasion, you do, you find like the stones they used to use. Right. And, um, but they're very rare. You find like an apple stone. It's really unusual to see like a, a 19, or I have a friend that has like a, um, a stone that was used for one of the colors on an apple label. Mm-hmm. And he's got, he's got the label also. It's from like 1910, somewhere in there. But it's kind of unusual. Um, it, there's not a big collector area for that, but usually that kind of stuff ends up in the, um, in the museum or along with a large collection in a museum. It's a good um, like reference for them. Mm-hmm. So getting and back... There's like Sorry, getting back to the uh, label business then, uh, the art and uh, the kinds of things you were mentioning about uh, 1905 and the Del Monte Company. Mm-hmm. They would print millions of these, but only a few survived. How, how, did that, how did that happen? This is actually one of the fun stories I wanted to tell you about. And because I'm primarily, I like can labels a lot. Um, can labels are vir- virtually a little bit older what they, what's available to pick up, and they're also much rarer. Mm-hmm. But what, what ended up happening, and this happens in general with, with printing companies, they always have, like, archives. Mm-hmm. And you have an archive, and what you do is you, um, let's say, Farmer Joe comes in and he, he prints up these labels, and then and you keep a few samples for him, you, you ship him his labels, his 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 labels. And then um, he comes back in, and the next year he says, well, I'm going to put my son in with me as a partner, so could you change my label and put Joe Farmer and son? Okay. And, and so you have all these variations, and they always, and the artists always go back, and they always had a bank of artists that would um, print this stuff, or, or, you know, that would design everything for you. And also, also you'd come in like the, if you if you want to design a label, you come in there and you talk to an artist and you tell them what you wanted. Like I want a picture of my son on there, or I want a picture of a, of an orchard or a vineyard, and they would put that together. And, and obviously, they also used to use their archives as a bank of references. So mm-hmm. They go back and they pull stuff out of this archive. So um, these archives. They didn't, you know, a lot of places, well, a lot of places kept them. A lot of them disappeared, got thrown out. Delmonte, um, Delmonte was like an aggressive company, and um, what ended up happening with the canneries is it was like a fragmented type industry back in the 1890s, mm-hmm. 1880s, and they started consolidating. And they consolidated and became California fruit canners and packers and eventually Delmonte. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically all these little companies became, became Delmonte, and Delmonte kept like an archive of all these labels. And dating back to like the 1880s, right? And in the 1960s, they had this, and they also printed their own labels. Yes. And in the 1960s, they decided to clean house, and they threw this stuff out. Oh no! And they had these, and they had like printing plates, the copper printing plates they were using at that time, the latest. And they had like um, sample books that they had pasted in all this stuff, all these labels, also like piles of different stuff. Yeah. And they threw them into dumpsters. Oh. And there was like three or four people that worked there that were. Um, they primarily they looked at it and they said, "Wow, this is really good stuff." And they started taking it home. Yeah. And they took home by the pickup loads. And um, some of the stuff, and I've gotten, you know, I've never really met any of people who have taken them home, but I've met people, relatives, or you know, people that have chunks of this stuff. And it was like one person had actually had a living room full of stuff. Oh goodness. And um, some of these labels now sell for like up to three hundred dollars. My goodness, you know, I mean, that was uh, the thing that really got my attention was the fact that, you know, like I mentioned before, I had never really heard about label collecting and how much there was to it, but how, you know, potentially valuable some of these labels were. But I just, the company that I work for has, uh, actually employs archivists for uh, correspondence and, and things just like this, and they go back well over 100 years, and so it's 
beyond me that anybody would think it was a good idea to throw this stuff away. What were they thinking? It's ephemera, and it's kind of like, um, you know, to be used at the moment. And um, it's by luck they, they were survived. And also when you look at the quantities, um, I'm, I'm from Placer County. Uh, it's a little county up in, up in Northern California. My dad raised pears. Okay. And we go back to, like, 1917 in the area. We, we raised pears. And, and there's a lot of companies that were, you know, 1910, 1920, 1930 that were in business, and none of the labels survived. Um, you know, you you see pictures of them and things like that. And there's a lot of people that put together like, you know, big collections. They also have pictures of stuff they're looking for from mm-hmm. articles or from um, maybe annuals from the industry. And oh, like no that. kidding. And, and so you you know they're out there and you know they were used, but you just they're just not available. Well, they're probably underneath something in somebody's attic or someone's basement. You know, <laughs> it's um, one of those things that I think it would be hard to research, but would ultimately be discovered rather than, you know, found at a library or in a museum. Is that a fair yeah. fair statement? Yes, and actually I got a good example. This is another really fun one. Um, there was a label called Hurry. My dad used it for like one year back in like the 40s. He always told me about it. Mm-hmm. And it was a little picture of a little dog running, and it says, it's a mover on the bottom. Hurry, it's a mover. It oh, yeah. Cool. And I've seen it. I'd seen a couple, and I knew a couple of people that had them, but they would never part with them, mm-hmm. no matter what. They just wouldn't part. And I'd looked for like... God, years and years for that label, and um, my parents had sold the ranch, and they had um, moved on. They were moving from their home, and I was with my brother helping them move, and there was this old, I guess it was some kind of a, this little box of these tools that would, like, screw on to make screws and things for, back, like, the 1930s or 40s, you'd use that to to make um, screws and, I guess, bolts for your, you know, equipment and stuff. Right. And the box box had broken, and it was these two boxes, these two pieces of wood were nailed on the end of each of it to support it. Anyway, I took it apart, and they were boxings with the labels Hurry on them. Ah. Oh. And so I finally got my Hurry label. You got your Hurry label. label. They, yeah, they had been there all the time. Uh, so like I say, discoveries. Now, um, to get started in label collecting, um, you mentioned you, know, you live in California, and your uh, your family was, uh, was in the pear business. By the way, are you still, uh, do you still grow pears, or... No, they sold. My dad retired back in, in the 70s, and actually where we're at, um, Placer County is pretty much, it's a bedroom community to Sacramento. Okay. So there's not much more farming up there anymore. Oh, well, that's too bad. Well, is, is, yeah. is uh, label collecting different kinds of labels, is that something you can make a living at, or is it just uh, still just a big hobby for you? Actually, I used to work for the state, and I quit when eBay came along. I used to do antique shows. Uh-huh. And, and actually, like, kind of like you said, you know, labels really weren't considered a collectible. They weren't really, even getting into antique shows back in the early 90s was, a lot of people didn't want them in their antique shows. No kidding. And, um, yeah, it, and usually, I mean, the only old ones I think they would, but sometimes they verge on to the 1960s and 70s. And I think some, some of the antique shows just didn't want that kind of stuff in there. And there's one guy, Frank Gallucci, who actually was like a pioneer in, in getting the labels into shows. No kidding. And getting exposure. So, no, no, I was just going to say, I mean, you guys invented not just a hobby, you invented a way to make a living. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, back to that. I heard a click, sorry. For the last 10 years, I've made a living at it. That's phenomenal. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And you sell sell labels over eBay. God love eBay. We talk about them enough on on the show. So, 
what made you wake up one day and just decide, well, I'm done with the state of California. I'm going to go full time. What was the, what was the stroke that hit you that, uh, or the thought that hit you that caused you to do that? Well, it's actually, it's a living. It's not a giant living. I'm not buying like Mercedes and things, but, um, what happened is I was actually doing antique shows. I enjoyed doing the shows. So I followed kind of like Frank. I'd done antique shows for about five years and it was no way to make a living. Um, mm-hmm unless you were really dove into it full-time and spent a lot of time into it. And eBay came along, basically. eBay came along, and it was like crazy the first five or six years, the, the sales. When I first got on eBay, I think there was like 80,000 items on there at the time. Right. So it was fairly, yeah, it was back in like 98. And um, what ended up happening is I was doing a part-time with the state, and and working in agriculture, you, you pretty much, your hours are really hard. Mm-hmm. You need to be long hours. And what was happening is, I was making just as much money on eBay, and I thought to myself, I didn't really care for what I was doing with the state anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, I just made the jump. Good for you. Yeah, and it worked out good. Yeah, good for you. So um, let's talk about uh, what's for sale on eBay, and then uh, talk about um, later on in the interview, we'll talk more about what some of the trends are and how people could get started. Um, okay. What have you got for sale that's hot on eBay at the moment? Actually, what I've done, um, one thing about labels, and there's like the scarcer ones we've talked about, and it's a small hobby, um, and then there's like the stuff that was found in large quantities. Some of the stuff was found in like 50 or 100,000 of them. Mm-hmm. So there's like giant amounts, and, and actually what people have done on eBay is they put packages together. So if you're actually just starting to get into labels and you kind of want to see what it's all about, you can get a package of labels, and they're like anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar a label. Okay. And what I've done is I've actually started wholesaling a lot of stuff just to, you know, drum up money during the slower times and get rid of some excess inventory. And um, I've actually sold a lot of stuff lately to Europe. Um, people have been, a couple I have a buyer in London and a buyer in Germany who are buying up stuff. And um, they're for resale. They're going to resale them over there. Incredible. And, um, Where do you find them? The, pardon me? Where do you find labels? You know what happened? There's, um, like in any hobby, there's hoarders. <laughs> yeah, we know about those. We all got those. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to break my habit of doing that. But what happened is there was, um, and working in, the ind- working in the industry, I knew a lot of collectors. So mm-hmm. what would happen is I knew these people that hoarded all this stuff. And some guys would, you know, a packing house might have, a packing house might pack four or five different products like peaches, different pears, like winter pears, summer pears, peaches, and I do apples. And they might do two or three different size boxes. And you might have four or five different brands. So you might have like 10 or 15 different labels. Mm-hmm. And you might be shipping, you know, tens, or th- tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of each one. So you'd have like giant inventories of these labels. You'd have like a room full of, of this stuff. And at some point in time, you quit using labels and you switch to cardboard. And so this room of labels would sit there and it would be um, just sitting there drawing dust. Yeah. And what, ha- what happened is a lot of people started hoarding these things back in like, they switched to cardboard back in like the 50s and 60s. It was a slow progression through the different commodities. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is you'd have these, um, you might have like 100,000 of this really cool orange label sitting in this warehouse. And like in 1965, 1970, a lot of people, um, there's a couple of people that were hoarding this stuff, going around to packing houses, picking it up. Um, Gordon McClellan was pretty much the father of the hobby. And he picked up a lot of orange labels in Southern California. And he, um, just he by Just by visiting dumpsters and warehouses or yeah you know where 
houses, and what they'd say is, you know, they'd be like an or- old orange plant, and they'd still be operating, and there'd be like an area in the back, and he'd say, you know, do you have any labels I could get in? And, you know, sometimes he'd pay them some money. Sometimes they probably just would let them throw them out, you know, let them take them. Jeez, that's incredible. That's, that is the, uh, we have a segment on the show where we talk about the found collectible of the week, and um, my friend Heather does... Uh, a segment on that every week. This is the ultimate found collectible so far. <laughs> the um, the only thing no, the only thing that has ever gotten close, and we've talked with this woman a couple of times, is uh, there's a woman who collects the labels off of bananas. Oh yeah. That's the only thing that's ever approached um, fruit crate labels or uh, or cans. Now let's talk a little bit about the art on these things because um, when I was getting ready for the interview. Uh, earlier, the thing that I noticed on the older labels is just how nicely, you know, it looks like they're painted. Uh, Is that true? Um, Well, actually, there was like photo, um, photo photography, you know, what they use, you know, in the the 30s, they started using photography as far as like you could use a photo to put on your label. Right. But but anything before the 30s, pretty much it's hard, it's hand-painted and then you take it, um, you'd paint, you know, the artist would paint it, and then you'd take it to your printing section, they'd separate the colors. Yes. And then they'd run different colors, and they'd put it back together on a label. I'm old enough to remember uh, when I used to do advertising printing that I remember four-color runs and blue yeah. blue plates and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so very similar to uh, what we've had, gosh, even up into the 90s, I guess, in traditional printing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Photography and printing evolve, and they're throwing these things away. And another thing, as a guy who buys printed material, I I hate overruns. I hate throwing stuff away. <laughs> it seems like they were, exactly. yeah, they were throwing an awful lot of really good stuff away. And like you said, it was labor intensive to print them, so you really wouldn't throw them away. Yeah, it cost you money. Yeah, that's like throwing money out. So, for people who are um, wanting to get these older labels like the ones you're talking about from you know the depression and even before the first world war what's a good way to do that there's not there's not a lot of options the best way to do it there's ebay of course is going to be a good place to go right and then you have websites and there's like i've got a website actually i primarily do my selling through the website now i've kind of um moved away from ebay but ebay is a great place because the prices are cheaper i mean it's a good place for me to wholesale Okay. And it's also a good place for buyers. What's your website, just while we're at it? Oh, it's um, thelabelman.com. Thelabelman. That's easy to remember. <laughs> yeah. Thelabelman.com. So uh, search the Internet. But I'm. you had mentioned that um, the people at the antique shows weren't that keen to have label folk around. Um, have a few years, about, about 15, 20 years ago. Have they changed their minds? Yeah, they're pretty accepted now. I think in general... Antique shows, I don't think they keep the level they used to keep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if the material is there like it used to be and stuff, but now they're pretty well accepted um, as a collectible. Okay. Like For getting into some of the later labels, if we don't want to go online, can you still go to warehouses and print shops and carry this kind of stuff away? You know, they've been gathered up, and what happens, you have... Um, you have, like, actually, it's funny, the industry has kind of certain people. I, I'm pretty much a good marketer. I, I'm, I'm a guy who sells labels. Mm-hmm. And um, there's people out there that search the stuff down. And 
and, and actually, I'm going to go for a, a run tomorrow for a find I'm going to do that's going to be really cool. Oh, good. I want to hear more nice. about that. <laughs> I'll tell you till I do it. Well, the show won't go up for several days, so <laughs> okay. you're fine. This is okay. this is live to tape, yeah. Okay, I found a printer's file, a printer company that, that has some stuff left, and um, I've known about them for a long time. And and basically, what you do is even like all the there's printing companies, and there's also um, box companies that mm-hmm. you can put labels on boxes for people. I mean, those are places to search them out. Old packing houses. Um, if you know people that worked in the industry, people that worked at different packing houses, sometimes mm-hmm. they took stuff home. Um, Packing houses are a little bit, fruit crate labels, are a little, they're a little bit more newer. Um, a majority of the fruit crate labels are from the 40s and 50s, where can labels are pretty much from the 30s and older. Right. And the reason being is by the time you hit 1930 with can labels, they're not very pretty. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah, what happens is the government put all these regulations, and all this, you have all this stuff written all over the can. And, um, and also, can labels are a smaller label than a crate label. A crate end is, is larger, so... You have less of a panel, which makes it less desirable as far as um, with the overall look of it. Well, I'm going to bet that the new labels is going to coincide with whenever Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, which was, of course, about uh, food and meat and meat packing. Probably. Is that like sometime in the, in the 20s? Yeah, I think so, because and um, I, I enjoy reading about history, but the thing that I'm remembering is uh, during the Spanish-American War, a lot of canned food was sent to Cuba, and uh, it made a lot of people sick because it wasn't properly done. And then Sinclair was, uh, well, a well-known author, but also kind of a the original Ralph Nader in terms of mm-hmm. food safety. So uh, that may have something to do with that. I remember the book, and actually there's a, Spanish American War, there's a, there's a food act, Drug and Food Act of 1906. Okay. And a lot of my, label, my labels have this Drug and Food Act of 1906, and that might correspond with what happened to this. War. Well, it could be. It's been a long time since I took history, but you know, I just it just occurred to me that might be it. So let's talk about the artists, and then I want to get into uh, the companies today and their positions on on labels. Were there people who all they did was draw labels for canned goods and fruit labels? Yeah, there's um, you know, it's an unrecognized um. There are unrecognized artists. There's a few people that, you know, through research we know that have worked at different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no Rockwell. There's nobody that really would be known um, by the public in general. And they never signed their labels. There's a couple, a couple of three that have actually the, um, the people have signed or put their initials on. But for the most part, they've never been signed. Hmm. Did there's you? Really no telling who did them. Were you ever able to track down any of their uh, descendants or heirs to say? Gee, I was an admirer of your forebearer's work, anything like that? I have a good friend. He's actually much more obsessive than I am and <laughs> probably has a lar- well, does have a larger collection than me. And he, um, he was more aggressive 20 or 30 years ago, and he did track down some families. And um, often the artists would take home stuff. And so you'd have, like, and I, I also have some, like, um, I don't know what you'd call them, but just the, the artwork itself. Mm-hmm. Like I've got some Del Monte artwork before they actually, you know, put them on the label, just put the artist put together. Mm-hmm. And so they're out there, and um, and I do have people contact me that say my you know, my father was an artist um, that did this and that on, on occasion. Oh, that's so cool. So the companies, uh, the big canneries are still around. Uh, we've, you know, you've mentioned Del Monte a couple of times. Do they have a position on 
collecting labels, and if so, what is it? Yeah, Damani's um, Damani's still around. It's kind of um, they don't get much. Like I said earlier, at the very beginning, the can labels are like a stepsister, so they don't get much. As far as reproductions, there's not much going on with can labels right now, but um, orange labels and, and crate labels, there's a lot of um, reproduction stuff going on. And Sunkist originally took a um, stance of, you know, I, we're, we don't really have the time for this. Yeah. And people are just like running these copies like crazy. There's one person who worked at the library in um, Riverside, and they have like a phenomenal orange collection, you know, mm. three or 4,000 orange crate labels that go back over a hundred years, really wonderful stuff. And apparently, she got some copies of it, and she's been like running all these copies on eBay. But um, recently, people ask me a lot about um, about you know, reproductions, and I don't get involved because I sell originals, and in reproduc- reproducing in, in um, this is a whole different area. And actually, if, if it gets sued or something, it'd be gigantic. Yeah, nobody wants that. All kinds nobody of copyright that. infringement on that. Yeah. Um, so what happens is, um, so what has happened is. Sunkiss has actually hired a marketing organization. Like, apparently, you can go through this marketing organization to get those images, licensing for those images to use. But if you've acquired them, just you know, you you fished them out of the dumpster or something like that, there's no liability associated with that, is there? No, there's not at all. What's okay? Now we have to talk about the salmon label story because um, the reaction I got from that six hundred dollar salmon can label was. Uh, a lot different than what the the kinds of things we generally hear about. the The feedback from the salmon label story was um, one of surprise. I think most people, including me, and that was the reason I read the story on on the air, were really surprised that this was a hobby. How did you come to be interviewed by the Associated Press? I think it was about your salmon that, label. That kind of guy. I thought it was going to be a little a little tiny story. Actually, by the way. I, Salmon aren't endangered. <laughs> yeah, I, and and I said that when I read the story. I said, you know, sal- I don't think salmon are endangered. Maybe the can labels were. I remember that, yeah. They're kind of like, they're actually not endangered, but they're actually going through some, I guess, issues would be the term. Okay. And usually that draws attention to them, which, which draws more to the hobby. Uh, on values of, valuing stuff is, you know, they always have like what they, um, I should bring some clarity, but the girl called me up and we were talking about different stuff back and forth, and I told her five or six hundred dollars would be like a top end for a salmon label, mm-hmm. and, and um, I've heard of a couple going at that range. I'm trying to re- back my mind to remember on eBay. I've seen them go for two to three hundred, and they aren't exactly what I would call um, top end label. Right. And so comparatively speaking, it's something that came up really big. It would go in the five or six hundred range. A lot of the rare stuff doesn't sell. It just changes hands in collections, and people trade them back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, parent labels are comparable. Parent labels are kind of um, not quite as popular as salmon labels, and I've seen them sell for three to four hundred dollars. And that's kind of where I come with the, the five to six hundred. Five to six hundred would be a a really rare label, like a one of a kind, you know, eighteen nineties, and generally out of Alaska. And if it would have like an image of Uncle Sam or something, or right. something like historic. Okay, that makes that sense. Kind of those kind of labels do draw. Um, there's a label from my hometown, that which I live in now, that I want to get, and I've seen. I know of seven of them. I pay five hundred dollars for it. No it's kidding. A label, yeah, and it's. Um, but it's, I'll never get it. Now, my impression is that um, you guys are kind of a. 
a tight-knit group, but are there associations of, of label collectors that we should know about? You know, the best one is the Citrus Label Society. Citrus Label Society, okay. And they have a website. If you just run a search on Google, a Citrus Label Society, you'll, you'll come up. And they meet monthly in Southern California and um, different locations. And collectors show up, a few dealers show up, and they also... Um, Every like every so often, a farmer would bring a bunch of different oranges into sample, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the collectors are farmers and stuff. Um, and that's a really great, co- um, re- really great organization. There's been a lot of attempts. Um, Yakima had a uh, they have like a, a yearly swap at the Yakima Museum. Mm-hmm. They put people go there and swap labels, and it was there was a newsletter that came out of there. Probably but, Apple um, labels in Yakima, right? Yeah, Apple labels in Yakima. Yeah, but it, it, has, it never gained popularity. Hmm. What's the future of your hobby look like? Good, I hope. <laughs> we talk about that, uh, different people, and you know, you, you talk about cycles. Um, I think the future of a hobby depends on if the younger generation wants to collect them. Mm-hmm. And there's always that fear. I mean, a lot of the people that are the big collectors are like in their 70s and 80s, and you're wondering uh, who's going to come along afterwards. But, I, you know, I sell a lot of labels to decorators. Okay. And um, they love them. They, they hang them up. And even local people like to buy labels that are local. And these are younger people. And I think the hobby is going to be, it's going to continue. But I think it's going to be, it used to be where you might have like a 5,000 label collection. And I think that those collections, those big collections are going to be gone. They're going to end up in institutions or mm-hmm. split up. And I think there's still going to be a small collectors around, but not quite as not quite as enthusiastic or not, not able to put together quite as big a collection. You know what I didn't ask you was how do you display a label, which is kind of a basic thing because uh, when we talk about displaying other printed materials on the show, it's got to be in great condition. It has to be mm-hmm. sealed up. Is is that the same kind of thing with displaying your labels? Yeah, it's just a piece of, you know, um, an artwork, a piece of art. Yeah. Well, Dwayne Rogers, give us your website one more time. Oh, thelabelman.com. TheLabelMan.com is where you can find Dwayne Rogers and his collection of all different kinds of labels. And Dwayne, i got to tell you, it was really a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you so much for uh, joining us on The Collector Show. And good luck with your run tomorrow. Uh, okay. And, uh, thank you very much, Harold. We will talk again. It's The Collector Show with Harold Nickel coming up next, The Found Collector of the Week with Heather Gallegos. Well, you know, last week on the Found Collectible of the Week, we talked about uh, hundreds of thousands of coats of paint on a ball. We talked about Saint Flesh. And now, this week, we're joined again by Heather Gallegos with the Found Collectible of the Week. And Heather, what have you found for us this week? Hi, Harold. Well, this week, we're going to go to the south. Mm-hmm. To be more specific, we're going to go to the southwest-central portion of the United States, mm-hmm. and we're going to cover the states of Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Awesome. Yeah. And, of course, uh, listeners will know that I am from Texas, so I'm anxious to uh, to hear all about that. Well, I expect that you'll know every one of these places that I talk about. I you may. Some sort of tidbit to add to it. It's, it's a big <laughs> place, though. It's a big it place. And Texas is known for being, like, you know, everything is large in Texas. And yep. we found so many of the sites are the world's largest, like, 
the world's largest urban bat colony in Austin, Texas. No or, kidding. Yeah, or the world's largest rattlesnake in Freer, Texas. Okay. Or the world's largest man-made illuminated star in El Paso, Texas. Wow. Many, many different things that were world's largest. So they it wasn't very surprising. So they only collect big stuff in Texas. <laughs> That's right. Only the big. <laughs> well, let's just start out in Beaumont, Texas. All right. This one was kind of a fun, uh, fun place to go see. There's the Fire Museum of Texas mm-hmm. in Beaumont. And in front of the Fire Museum, they have the um, world's third largest fire hydrant. And it's uh, spotted like a Dalmatian. So it's white with black spots. Mm-hmm. And you can go and view that and take a picture. It's, it's always visible, and it's free to do that. Mm-hmm. But the museum itself is open Monday through Friday, 8 to 4.30. Oh, fun. And it's located just a few blocks away from the historic Crockett Street. Right. So if, if you could kind of, I guess, make like a day trip out of this one for sure, there's several things to see. And I'm sure the museum itself, I guess after the attacks on 9-11, mm-hmm. all the firefighters that were killed... Um, they made a brick, and that all those bricks now are outside of the museum on the ground so that people can kind of take a moment for reflection as right. well. Yeah. So that sounded very nice, like a good thing to go visit. So in the fire museum, they have a collection of, of uh, firefighting equipment um, mm-hmm. in addition to the world's third largest <laughs> fire hydrant that's painted <laughs> that like a Dalmatian. That's kind of fun. There's a picture on the um, roadsideamerica.com if yep. your listeners want to go look at that. They also have several working wire or fire plugs, you know, around the building, mm-hmm. and they're all also painted like Dalmatians. Okay. So it's kind of cute. Um, we could also go to Fredericksburg, Texas, mm-hmm. where we have the world's largest cat gun collection. Cool. So, yeah, it's, it's a private collection. It's uh, stored in a 5,000-square-foot museum. And there's just hundreds. The owner doesn't even know how many cap guns he has anymore. He has mm-hmm. so many in his collection. Man. But um, the most, I guess, famous or most valuable is from 1792. It's a one-of-a-kind pioneer Negro rig. It's in mint condition. And, Harold, you're not going to believe it, but this gun is worth $50,000. Wow. Now, yeah, just zero. now, just to make sure I understand, I mean, cap. when we talk about cap guns, we're talking about toys, right? Yeah, toys. That's so, right. Yeah. So in Fredericksburg, which um, is a great part of the state of Texas, the weather's great, The uh, that's in the hill country oh. in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been to Fredericksburg, although, you know, not lately, but I had never heard of the cap gun museum. Oh. Is there a fee? I don't know. It didn't give a whole lot of um, information about this because they also have a bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they have multiple things going on there. So I would, I would encourage your listeners to call if they're going to go visit mm-hmm. um, and, and check out their entry. I, th- there is no um, fee listed on the actual entry on right. Roadside America, so I'm not sure. But um, you know, it always is wise just to call before you go to visit any of these places. Right. Some of these are individually owned or privately operated. They may take vacation. So if you're, you know, planning a trip, and this is one of the highlights of your trip, I don't think it would be a bad idea to call first just to make sure that someone's going to be there when you get there. Yeah, it's a good idea. Fredericksburg in general is a great place to uh, to vacation. Oh, it's, um, very cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a blowing man. If I, uh, of any of the places in Texas that uh, I'd recommend, Fredericksburg is pretty close to the top. Right, great. Well, then there's a lot to do there, right? Absolutely. So it be just like another really cool thing to go see while you're there. Yes, I would, uh, oh. I really recommend that. So anyway. Okay.
moving right along. What about San Antonio? You like that area too? Another great part of the state of Texas and very historic. Um, you know, earlier in the show we talked about the San Jacinto Museum and the collection of Texas memorabilia there, but San Antonio, of course, you've got the Alamo, and you got more modern attractions there as well, but I can't wait to hear what kind of odd collection you've uncovered for us. <laughs> well, they have the world's largest wooden nickel. Oh, boy. Which sounds really cool. It was unveiled um, on June twenty second, 2002. Mm-hmm. The, the nickel is 13 feet 4 inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. It's 5 and a half inches thick, and it weighs over a ton, 2,500 pounds to be exact. And it's actually located in front of the Wooden Nickel Museum. Oh. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. You can go learn all about wooden nickels, but then you can actually take a picture of the world's largest, which is right in front. And it's located at 345 Austin Road. And what I had for admission was free. Wow. So we always like free. Yeah. We love free stuff. And it sounds like with a wooden nickel that big in front of it, it would be hard to miss. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's in my, it's on, it's mounted. So, you know, you really can't miss it. It's kind of high up. So right. That sounds really fun. And I've never, I never got that expression, don't take any wooden nickels, because why would anybody do that? That would just be silly. Mm-hmm. But somebody did and started a collection. That's right. And now you can go see their collection on display. Cool. You can also go to the North Star Mall in San Antonio and see the world's largest pair of cowboy boots. And if you think Texas, te- cowboy boots kind of pops into your mind. It sure. It does for me. Well... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I never wore cowboy boots a whole lot when I was living there, but some people do. Really? Yeah, they're they just so. Didn't issue them to you at a certain age. <laughs> 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 One day, like, <laughs> like your uh, here's your seventh grade Texas history textbook and your boots. Yep. No, it didn't work that way. I found them oh. really hot and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. They look kind of pointy. And, I, you know, I've been to the uh, Gulf Coast region of Texas, sure. and it's very hot yeah. there. So having, you know, leather up to your calves, that just does not seem like a really smart idea. It was unappealing <laughs> even then, and they are uncomfortable. Really? Yeah. I've never worn a pair, but I, I am impressed by how beautiful they are and the craftsmanship that goes into making them. Too pretty to wear. beautiful. Yeah. But too nice to wear, too pretty to wear, um, horrendously expensive. Oh, yeah, and, uh, sure. hot and uncomfortable. <laughs> but that's just my opinion. That, well, there you go. And everyone has an opinion. Yeah. But really, as I went through the whole RoadsideAmerica.com site, I mean, there are so many things in Texas to see. I cannot nearly list them all off right now. But I was really impressed at the number, again, world's largest. And just let's end it because Texas is, you know, known for being longhorn country. Oh, yeah. There is there is in Austin the world's largest longhorn statue. Oh, boy. He's made of fiberglass. But the funny thing is he was made in Nebraska. <laughs> and then trucked <laughs> on over to Texas. He's at 2246 Guadalupe Street, the southeast corner. Mm-hmm. And um, it's free. You can take a picture. It, it's just quite impressive. He's huge. Sounds like it. All right. Yeah. What state comes next? Uh, let's go on over to Oklahoma. All right. And there's a few interesting things over there. I'm sure more than a few. Okay. I just, I just wrote down a few. In Foyle, uh, Oklahoma, there is the world's largest totem pole on Highway 28A. 
as you can imagine, it's always visible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a free gift shop. There's a gift shop that you can go to, free to go to the gift shop. Monday through Saturday, 11 to 3, and Sunday, 1230 to 4. There's always a gift shop, no matter where you go. Yeah. There's a gift shop. You can take home a magnet of the totem pole. You know, there's so many different things. That's kind of fun. Yeah. There's also, if we want to go up to Durant, Oklahoma, the world's largest peanut. And when I read that that headline, I I always get excited when I see, like, the world's largest any sort of produce. Uh Uh-huh. And so often, I'm just, I'm disappointed because this peanut, he's made of cast aluminum. Oh, it's not really. It's not a real no, peanut, then. No, they never are. They're always statues, or are made of some other, you know, material mm-hmm. just to look like. But it's um, right in front of City Hall. It's free, and it's three hundred West Evergreen Street. If you if you're in Durant. Okay. And you can go see a big peanut. It's not brought to you by planners or anything like that. <laughs> no. See another great licensing opportunity. There was a sponsorship right there, and, and not even taken advantage of. Incredible. It. No. We could also go to Claremore, Oklahoma, and this one was kind of interesting. It's the J.M. Davis Arms and Historical Museum. Mm-hmm. They have a large collection of guns, swords, and cannons from the antique period all the way to modern times. Cool. And the admission, just a donation. Oh. You get to choose. <laughs> like a quarter. No, <laughs> that would just be mean. Um, it's located at 333 North Lynn Riggs Boulevard, Okay. Monday through Saturday, 8.30 to 5, and Sunday, 10 to 5. It's just amazing that it sounds like people have just collected stuff over the years and mm-hmm. thought, hey, let's open a museum. Yeah, and that, they just put it on display for everyone to enjoy. That's uh, very generous of people to do that. Exactly, it really is. So, All right, you want to move on to Arkansas? Let's go to Arkansas. All right, well, we can go to Eureka Springs where they have a couple of things that you can see. They have the Ozark's largest rocking chair. Which wow. Which leads me to believe that other regions have large rocking chairs, so they can't say world's largest. Right. It's five foot wide and eight feet tall, and it sits right across from the Pine Mountain Jamboree, which just sounds like fun, and I don't even know what it is. Yeah. Why would you not want to go? Big rocking chairs yeah. at the Jamboree. And you can sit in it and have your picture taken. Cool. I know. Another part of the uh, thing that we've stressed you know throughout this series is that you know part of collecting and discovering new collectibles is collect some fun and collect a a funny picture of you and your family in the world's or sorry the uh region's biggest rocking chair that's right and, and then and then take in the jamboree it, take in the jamboree or you could go down about a mile south of eureka springs on highway 23 and you could listen to the world's largest tuned musical wind chimes. Oh, boy. The pipes alone, Harold, are 35 feet, 10 inches long. And there's six pipes on this thing. I just have a vision of the wind picking up and people, you know, clutching their ears because of the volume. It's too loud. My ears. <laughs> that was the exact thing I thought. <laughs> first of all, how do you move pipes that are 35 feet long? I mean, that's got to be a big wind. Yeah, well, yeah. And then the sound that has to come out of these things as they vibrate, oh, my God. Yeah, it's deafening. It, it would be fun to go see, I think. And you'll bleed out of your ears and your nose. It's <laughs> fun for the whole family. Quite a collection of, of uh, big wind chimes. Who, have you ever even heard of that? I have never even heard of that. No. Um, I know. But, you know... Um, People will have them in their backyards, and they just annoy me oh, like that's crazy. Probably not 
have a site then that you want to go see. You know, the sound of birds chirping isn't enough. We need to augment it with chimes. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. I, I digress. Yeah. Let's also go to Magnolia, Arkansas. Okay. And they have the world's largest charcoal grill. Wow. And I just thought, you know, you like to barbecue. I do. Most men, most men like to barbecue. It's located at a store called Big Boy's Toys. And it's huge. You'd have to, to move it, you'd have to hook it up to, like, the back of your, your truck mm-hmm. or, you know, SUV. Right. It, it's just giant. It's on 24, or Highway 79 North, and then ad, or street number is 24. So um, they also host the World Champion Steak Cook-Off. Oh, boy. So, yeah, you would just want to call to see if you could time it right to go um, a visit when the cook-off was going. Maybe you could be a judge, Harold. <laughs> oh, um, we don't have time for me to tell my uh, my story about the time I was a judge at a at no. a barbecue and got real sick. It's not a I good know. thing. We'll we'll I cover know. that another day. Okay. All right. Well, let's just head on to Louisiana. Let's do. You're running out of time. Yes. There's um, Abita, Louisiana, has the uh, UCM Museum. It's basically just in a collection of weird and odd things. Mm-hmm. And my two favorite things were the Bassigator monster, which from the picture looks like it's a cross between a bass and an alligator. Okay. Hence the name, the Bassigator. Bassigator, right. But then my favorite was a UFO crash site. They have a mobile home on their property with the UFO still embedded in the wall. <laughs> Get out. I swear. <laughs> it. So that's something that you really want to go see because it's right there. It's evidence. What does it look like? I don't know. There wasn't a picture, so I only have a mental image of what it looks like. Oh, that... But the Bassigator picture is up there, and I really recommend that people go look at it because it's just it's hokey looking. I only thought the, the uh, well, you'll probably get to this in weeks to come, but the UFO collections were all in Roswell, New Mexico. No. No, Louisiana has one, too. And it's cool stuck, in a, stuck in a mobile home. That's right. Still there. Uh, cool thing about this thing is the admission is only $3 if you're over three years old. Right. So that's, that's really cheap. It's located at 22275 Highway 36, open daily, 10 a.m. to 5. That sounds like fun. Yeah. So then we can also continue in Louisiana. They, these two are just, they're just sad. This is <laughs> New Orleans right after um, Katrina. The right. Year after they opened up the Insectorium which is the world's largest bug museum uh-huh. in the U.S. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cute. Um, it's located at 423 Canal Street, and one of the entries said they actually cook and eat bugs there. Ew. Yeah, that is kind of gross. Um, but then Louis- or New Orleans also has Mardi Gras World. Yes. And they, that, you can go there and see the artists working on, like, the um, float. Or a collection of drunks. Oh, well, Yeah. Collection of drunks wearing beads. That's right. But we did talk about that in one of our found collectibles, the Mardi Gras beads. Oh, sure. Yeah. So you can see them working on the theme for the following year. And that's located at 1380 Port of New Orleans Place. Mm-hmm. Open daily, 10 a.m. to 6. And then this last one that I'm going to cover in Louisiana, this just made me sad. This is in Carville, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Old State Leprosarium Museum. Oh. That's right. It was a leprosy colony. It was closed in 2000, and the National Hansen Disease Center converted the hospital into a museum and has now opened it up to the public. Okay. That is just sad. But the admission is free. Well, yeah. 
And over here, we have a collection of ears. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But when they closed it in 2000, there were still residents there. Well, where did they go? I don't know. It did not say. But what I'm thinking, germs, I don't know. Yeah. Is that enough time? Uh, I'm not chancing it for free, but it's there. Well, another, uh, it's another great opportunity for another sponsorship, like Purell or <laughs> that hand cleaner. <laughs> Any pharmaceutical company. Oh, man. There's so many possibilities. I know. It was bad. Well, but it's I an interesting it. collection. Um, I'm sure it is. But Yuck. I don't... Ears. You're terrible. I know. I'm sorry. That was terrible. But it was pretty darn funny. Listeners probably think of me as being such a nice person, and now that's just ruined. Well, maybe I'll edit this. Maybe I'll edit this out, or maybe I won't. Well, that was excellent, Heather. A very interesting collection of kind of odd collections that you can take in during the summer months. Now, next week on the Collector Show, two things coming up. One, we're going to talk about pinball machine collecting with a man who collects and repairs. Not the electronic computerized, but the mechanical ones that um, guys my age will remember from growing up. And a man who has collected and reproduced recipes from a lot of popular restaurants. The uh, top secret recipe chef, and we're going to talk to both of those next week on The Collector Show. Remember that if you've missed a show, you can go back to iTunes and subscribe and get all of them for free. Or you can go back to Web Talk Radio and listen to any past show from The Collector's Show. And because of the summer and traveling, I know that people will want to do that. So thank you, Heather, for another interesting collection. And thanks to everybody for listening. Come back next week for pinball machines and top-secret recipe collections on The Collector's Show. I'm Harold Nickel. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your love I'd be rich.